Our topic this week, we started a new book, a book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 1, Power Prayer. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Halachai, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. It's the 20th year of the king, Artaxerxes, and uh, this follows uh, the book of Ezra, and so he's in Shushan, and so this kind of chart here, see here on the right-hand side, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah listed. And at one time, that was one book, and now in our Bibles today, it's two different books, but it's one theme. This, this theme, this Ezra and Nehemiah, begins, the beginning of Ezra starts all the way here, so it's co- covering a hundred-year time period in those two books. And so Ezra starts with Cyrus, and the return of the exiles, the first return to Jerusalem 70 years after Babylon destroyed the temple, fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah that we'd be able to return. And, and in these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, those kings, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes, well, Xerxes is not, but the other three are mentioned in the books, and those two kings who lived for a short period of time uh, are not mentioned, but it covers this whole time period, and so under Ezra, still within the first six chapters, there's a delay in the building, and Darius becomes king, and he allows us to finish the building of the temple. Zerubbabel is mentioned, uh, Yeshua, who I don't have on here, the Kohen Gadol was in Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah are all mentioned in, in those books. And then there's a 57-year time period in the middle between chapter 6, of Ezra and chapter 7 of Ezra and then chapter 7 of Ezra he's talking from first-hand experience he was there and for whatever reason Ezra and Nehemiah don't mention Xerxes and they don't mention Esther which is kind of interesting I, I don't know why uh, would have been nice <laughs> to do that to kind of fill in the gap there of the uh, of the full over hundred so years and then there's a 12-year period of time between the Reformation that happens under Ezra. Ezra comes back, Artaxerxes allows a third decree for us to come back to Jerusalem and to finish, the temple had been finished, but now to finish the city and to allow us to have a lot of autonomy to put forth judges that can enforce the laws of God. And anyone who doesn't follow the laws of God, they have the ability to confiscate property or persecute or whatever. They decide, the judges decide. So that's the, the third of the three decrees from Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes fulfilling the prophecy in Daniel 9 that there would come a time when there would be a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. And it's mentioned in the book of Ezra as one decree. I think it's chapter 7. So the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. And that starts the 490-year time period that takes us from that date, 457 uh, BCE, with that decree to the coming of the Messiah, to his immersion, to his uh, death, and to the spreading of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit poured out, and the gospel going uh, through Paul to the uh, uttermost parts of the then known world, through Paul and, and the other disciples, and the disciples. Um, And so then Nehemiah picks up 12 years later, and that's where we're at now in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes started in 464, and so we're in 444, Nehemiah, the 20th year. And so if it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and let's say Nehemiah was 30 years old or so, then he would have overlapped with Xerxes, you know, so Artaxerxes would have become king when he was 10 years old. So he might have been alive, which probably was alive during Esther's time. Uh, certainly if he was, you know, 40 years old, then Esther might have still been alive. We don't have any record of what happens to Esther or Mordecai after Mordecai is made prime minister and Haman is taken out, which is in 473. And so we don't know how long they lasted after that. Uh, we don't know what happened when Xerxes died. We don't know if Esther uh, predeceased him or was taken out or, or what happened there. 
but it is possible that Nehemiah was there somewhere overlapping during that time. But it's, uh, it's over 20 or 30 years since the book of Esther has finished where we pick up the book of Nehemiah. Close to 30 years. Uh, 20 years since, again, Artaxerxes' reign. Okay, so he says in verse 11, jumping to the end of the chapter, he says he is the cupbearer. That gives us a little knowledge of him, that he's from the tribe of Judah, tells us his father, and tells us his, that he lives in Shushan, so he did not come back, his parents did not come back with any of those, or his grandparents, uh, come back with any of those previous uh, decrees that allowed us to go back. So for whatever reason, his family didn't choose to go back. It's not necessarily a good sign of, of faithfulness and obedience to follow the word of God, but they didn't. But we do see that Nehemiah has a heart after God, and we'll see that in this chapter and throughout the book. And that God placed him in a very important position as a cupbearer. And that uh, was a very responsible position because he was the food tester for the king. And so if there was any uh, poisons and was trying to poison the king, Nehemiah would have had a taste at first, and the king says, well, he's still alive, and so it can't be too bad, and so then he would be able to eat. And so that's a, you know, kind of a difficult position to be in, but also a trusted position. They would only pick someone who they trust, because Nehemiah could fake it, he could, uh, he could you know, put the poison in after he shows he tasted the, the, the wine, and so it's good wine, and then he puts some poison in and passes it on, so... So he's got the king's trust. He's also in contact with the queen, king quite a bit in this position, which God uses, as we'll see, uh, in, not in this chapter, but in this book of Nehemiah. So that's his position, where he's living, and his background heritage. So verse 2. Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah... And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And so we don't know if it's a blood direct brother, same parents, or brethren as far as cousins, or you know, extended type of family, but someone that he knows, someone that he considers close with, calls him brethren, as well as these other men from the tribe of Judah, uh, coming from Judah, and he meets with them. And so we don't know how long the, his brethren or his brother and I was in Jerusalem. Maybe he'd been there for a long time. But he comes back, and he comes back with a message regarding those that had escaped and survived the captivity and regarding Jerusalem. And so whether their, their purpose of coming was to meet with, with uh, Nehemiah or he was desirous to see them, to know what's going on, but he does begin to question them and the uh, information comes forth concerning Jerusalem. So they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now that's not new. I mean, that's, they were burnt fire, you know, over 170 or so years ago, back with Nehemiah. Uh, but it's news that they haven't been rebuilt. They've had three opportunities to, and they didn't necessarily waste those opportunities. They did build the temple, and they did build up the walls to a certain extent, but it's still not finished after all of this time. And maybe new news for Nehemiah is that they are in great distress and reproach. And as we saw on the chart, there's about a 12-year period of time from when Ezra does the reform of when he finds out that the people were intermarrying uh, outside their faith, unequally yoked, and he pulls out his hair, and he prays, and he's, um, others join him in prayer, and a reformation takes place where they put away the strange wives and they repent of the sin. And then there goes about 12 years break between that period of time, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 of Ezra and Nehemiah chapter 1. What do you think happened in those 12 years? What was going on in Jerusalem in those 12 years? Nothing, exactly. Nothing was going on. That's why nothing mentioned. And nothing bad was going on, right? The Bible only tells us when things are going bad. That's when it tells us all the chapters are about when things are not good. 
Right? So if there's no mention, they had the 57 years there until Esther, but in Jerusalem, 57 years, no mention. They were doing good. They built the temple. They were worshiping the Lord. They were participating in the sacrifices, receiving forgiveness of sins, and uh, living in God's righteousness and glory. Until then, Ezra comes, and then he finds out what it started happening, and thus the Bible tells us about the bad that was happening. And then 12 years, so nothing's mentioned, so we can assume things were good, until Nehemiah finds out that they are in great distress and reproach, so there's problems, and then the Bible starts telling us about it. So there's lots of things, lots of time periods in the Bible that doesn't tell us what's going on, because things were going good most of the time. Most of the, the Bible is written about the bad times in a relatively short period of time. A lot of verbiage of bad news. Kind of like our news today. And it doesn't spend a lot of time telling about the good things that take place in the world. So here they're in great distress, and we'll find out through the book some of what this great distress was. Neighboring people opposing uh, Jewish people and hindering the, the work of moving forward. And they are under reproach. And again, they don't, aren't able to fully protect themselves because the walls aren't completed and the gates are still broken down. So, when Nehemiah heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So this affected him greatly. He feels it. He hears just a short little bit that's mentioned there. Great distress, reproach, gates and walls still broken down, and he just collapses over this. And again, some of it's not new news, other than maybe he had the expectation that when Ezra went, they would have gotten the gates and the walls finished. And so he's greatly distressed about it, so much so that he's weeping and mourning for many days. This is affecting him. And we'll see in another chapter this many days is actually four months. That's many, many days of this mourning, grieving, praying, not necessarily fasting the whole entire time, but fasting during that time. And this tells us a little bit more about the character of Nehemiah. So we have his background, the position that he's in, a trusted position, a responsible position, a difficult position. And he is a godly person, because he cares what's happening. We read Ezra took like five months or four months or something like that for them to get there. And so a good distance away. And yet he's still concerned with what's happening over there. And not only concerned that he asks his brother what's happening, but when he hears it's not going great, it affects his heart. And he weeps and mourns over what is happening. And that is the type of heart we should have for what is happening in the land and in the world. We're so concerned with what's happening with our life, with our job, with our house, with our health. And we read the news and it's so easy to um, get overwhelmed with so much tragedy that's going on that we can become numb to it. But it is horrible and we should care and it should break our hearts when we read of the tragedies of what's happening. There's godly people in Africa, young girls are being kidnapped again in massive numbers by Muslims and raped and abused and sold and killed, villages and churches being destroyed, Christians being persecuted. Horrible in other parts of the world. Crackdowns are taking place among believers. Very difficult to live the faith in a lot of areas. Martyrs are taking place daily. It should affect us. It should grieve us. It should hurt us. I mean, just in local news in the, this country, horrible things taking place. Um, a lady in Michigan was, had ankle shackles put on her and handcuffs because she opened her restaurant. She owns a restaurant. She came from Poland where she saw communism and saw oppression, left there, came to the United States a number of years ago. Didn't want to lose her business. 
wanted to keep it open, wanted to serve her customers. And so they came and they shackled her, dragged her off. And initially already sentenced for 90 days. And we'll see what happens to him. Huge fine. How do you run a business from prison? Man in Canada was arrested for calling his 13-year-old daughter a she. And they arrested him. Horrible things. This should affect us. This should affect our hearts and minds, liberty, people's freedoms, people's rights. What's being done to young people? What's being done to people throughout the country and throughout the world? Changes that are taking place. And we can just read it and move on, or we can be affected by it and be in prayer. And that's what we see about Nehemiah. He hears news and he moves to pray. He was a man of prayer. We're going to see that throughout this book. And we need to be people of prayer. And if people have God's heart, who are concerned with the suffering that is going on in the world around us, and to speak out, to see what can be done. But first and foremost, to bring it before the throne of God and to lay it at his feet. And then we get his prayer. And so as we look at his prayer, we'll learn how to pray. I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. So he starts off by acknowledging and identifying the God that he is praying to. This outline that we're going to see of this prayer is very similar when they asked Yeshua, teach us how to pray. And he taught them how to pray. And he didn't mean for them to use these exact words. He gave an outline. These are the topics that are good to cover in your prayer. This is an order that is good to cover to do in your prayer. And you start off by identifying which God you're talking to. Because if you just say God, well, there's a lot of gods that could try and answer that prayer, try and listen in on that prayer. And so we need to identify who it is. Right, that you're being as being called, right? So that someone's just not calling in a crowd and just calling your name, <laughs> you know, calling a name that's yours. It might not be calling you, right? Uh, so calling specifically who the God, the Lord God of heaven, right? Not just God, but He is the Lord God. Satan refers in the first chapters of the Bible to the Lord God as God. He believes there is a God. He knows there is a God but he doesn't acknowledge him as Lord God of heaven, right? So where he lives, where he dwells, where his throne is, that he is over the heavens, that he is over all, not just like Satan, Lucifer, who goes to and fro throughout the earth. He is the God of heaven, of the entire universe, of all creation. And he is the master of it all. He is Lord God of heaven and earth, and he is great, and he is awesome, the awesome God. And so there's a lot of different identifications you can do, starting your prayer, right? God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God who created all things, there's only one God who created all things, right? So there's a number of different identifying ways that you can start your prayer in calling out on God and who he is above all the other gods, the God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords, lots of things. The Bible describes lots of different prayers start various different ways. So, call upon God, Lord God, Lord God of heaven, specifically as the God that you're talking to, that you're bringing your request to. And of course, starting, I don't want to miss this, I could put this, start with a heart like Nehemiah's heart. We get that by praying for it. You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Right? So identifying God's character, you who keep the covenant, right? You, the Lord God, you who do this, right? And so whatever your need is at the time, right? And so if you're needing healing, you wouldn't necessarily pray, 
Lord, you who keep the covenant in mercy, right? You're not necessarily needing mercy at that time, you're needing healing, right? So you might say, Lord God, you are the healer, you are the great physician, you know, call upon him that way. Uh, if you're in need, you, Lord God, who is the great provider, Jehovah Jireh, right? God who provides for our needs. And so call upon him in his attributes for what your specific need is. Again, it's not just a, a rote prayer. It's not just reading a prayer from a prayer book. It's a personal prayer using principles to cover all the topics. And, and it's not so much for God, it's more for us. Right? That we know who we're praying to and we're exalting him and lifting him up, that he is able to meet the need. A whole lot better to describe him as the, the one who can meet the need before you present the need. Right? If you have a medical problem, it's a whole lot different when you're talking to a doctor, especially a specialist in that field, as opposed to just talking to somebody else. Right? You're expecting more, so you, that's why you, you'll go to that specialist, because they know more about that topic, hopefully, and they're able to assist you. So you start by the Lord God, and then his attributes of meeting that need. Coming to you because you're a great electrician, you're a great plumber, you're a great, I've heard you're a great doc, you've got great reviews, so I'm coming to you with my need, but you start with where he is at. The one who's able to meet that need and help that specific problem. And in this case, this is what he was needing. He was needing someone who's going to keep his covenant. That's why he's doing that. He needs a great and awesome God. He needs the Lord God, the one of the heaven, above the king of kings, above the problems of this earth. And I need one who's going to keep his promise. You promised us we were going to return. You promised us we were going to be able to restore and build Jerusalem. And it hasn't completed yet. And we need you to keep your promise. We need you to keep your covenant. We need you to fulfill what has been started. You who began it, you will complete it. And that's why I'm coming to you, right? See, that's what he's doing. That's why he's, he's praying this way, because that's what his need is right there. And not even his need, but the people back in Jerusalem. I mean, he's got a pretty good life, as long as no one's trying to poison the king, right? <laughs> but otherwise, he's got no, no, now he's got good food, he's eating the king's banquet, he's, uh, you know, he's probably got nice housing, probably nice clothing, probably gets paid pretty good for, for that position. And certainly he's not dressed in rags, the king wouldn't have someone in his court who's dressed in rags, so he's got it pretty good, but he's concerned for others. And that's the type of heart we have to have. God's heart. Concern for others. Loving others more than ourselves. So call upon God and his attributes, in particular the attributes for the prayer request that you're bringing at that moment. Verse 6, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel your servants. So there's a lot we can mention there. Uh, attributes that he sees, that he hears. Be attentive. You see what's going on there. I just heard this news. You see this news. You see what's going on in Jerusalem. You never sleep. You never slumber. Your eyes are upon Jerusalem. Uh, you care for your people. You hear our cry. You heard us when we were in slavery. You hear our needs. They're crying out to you. They're in distress. But also he says day and night. And our prayers need to be persistent and continual. Yeshua told a parable of a lady who had a need and she came to a judge and he refers to him as an unjust judge. Didn't want to hear her case. Didn't care about her need. And yet she continued to persist and continued to persist and continued to persist. He didn't want to hear it. It sounds a lot like judges today. But nonetheless, she continued to persist and continued to persist. And then he finally says, I'll hear your case and I will bring justice, not because I'm a just judge, but because I want to get you off my back because I'm tired of hearing from you because you're so persistent in it. And so how much more the God of heaven, who is a loving God, who is a just God, if we continue in consistent prayer day and night. And it's not for God's need. It's not that God doesn't hear. It's not that he doesn't see. It's not that he's not concerned. He hears our prayers before we even pray them. But the persistency is for our sake. So that we realize how important it is to us. So then when he does answer, we can be thankful. Because if it's just like turning on a switch, oh, God do this and he does this, we take it for granted. 
But when we realize how much we really need it, and pray and pray and pray, and not just saying the same words over and over again, but each day and each night, as it's a real heartfelt prayer, it'll be worded in different ways. We'll come at it from different angles, which will help us to see the whole magnitude of it and what the needs are and how miraculous it is when God does answer and does come through. So, Nehemiah doesn't give up for four months. Continues at it in prayer. And again, he's talking about a prayer request that's 100 years old in the, in the making, a fulfillment, uh, an answer to prayer that's over 100 years in the making. How long have you been waiting on your prayer to be answered? Have you been waiting over 100 years? Four months? Keep, do not grow weary in well-doing. Continue in prayer. Continue persistently in prayer petitioning the Lord God. Because if we give up after a week, after you know, one prayer, after a couple months, and we stop praying about it, well, obviously it wasn't important to us. Because it wasn't important to you, why should it be important to me? Day and night he prays. We need to not fail in prayer. Keep praying. Do not give up. Do not lose hope. Do not lose faith. God's arm is not too short to save. He will come through at the right time, whether it's circumstances that have to do with the answering of the prayer or whether it's getting our heart ready. As we'll see, there's other aspects to the prayer that has to get our heart ready for it. Are we praying for selfish motives? Are we praying just for ourselves? Are we praying for our betterment? Or are we praying for God's will to be done? And so the continuing in prayer gives God opportunity to soften our heart and bring us in position to see and really appreciate and experience the answer to the prayer. So in our prayers, we need to be persistent in praying. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. Another very important part of prayer is confession. And here we see a corporate repentance. We have sinned against you. We saw that in the book of Ezra, where Ezra is praying, we have sinned, chapter 9. We have done this evil. Forgive us. And he's referring to a specific sin of the intermarrying with unbelievers. Now, he didn't do that. And Nehemiah can say, we have sinned, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Ezra was talking about a specific sin that he did not do. But yet he still identified so much with the people, he was able to pray, we have committed this sin. He wasn't even in town. He wasn't even in the same city. He was thousands of miles away, five months away. Wasn't even like he could take responsibility if he was leading and saying, well, my leadership didn't. He wasn't even, he didn't even know those people. But he knew them in heart. We see Moses prays this type of prayer. Blot my name out if you can't forgive them for their sins. We see Paul prays this. I wish I could be accursed for my brethren's sake. See, Ezekiel refers to this type of prayer, sighing and crying for the abominations that are done in the land. Very interesting. A lot of those are all in the same chapter. Chapters 9, Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Ezekiel 9, Romans 9, Deuteronomy 9. Did a whole sermon on that. You can go to shalomadventure.com and in the search type in 999 and 9, it'll show up, something like that. Um, corporate repentance, and it'll come up. Very interesting. But then there are other people like Nehemiah who do it, and they did it in chapter 1. <laughs> and Yeshua not only prayed, we have sinned, he became sin. He so identified with us, and he did not commit any of the sins, that he became the sinner and took the punishment for our sins. No greater love than to lay down our lives 
for one another. I know a person might lay down their life for a righteous person. Nehemiah is willing to lay down his life for the king. He might not have a choice, but that's his job. But how much more so that Yeshua laid down his life for you and for me, sinners, while we were yet enemies against him, while we were yet in sin, while we were yet in rebellion against him. God's mercy poured out upon us. And that's how Nehemiah is praying. He has God's heart being concerned, fasting, praying, mourning for people he hasn't even known, for a city he hasn't even seen, and then willing to identify with them, we have sinned, both my father's house and I. And the sins that are taking place in the land, and I just mentioned just a few before, and it can go on and on and on, so many horrible things that are taking place in this country and in this world that would take forever to list them. But identified with them. And those sins that I mentioned are our fault. And our fathers and parents and grandparents and generational sins. Because if we as believers would have been doing what God had called us to do from the beginning, the gospel would have gone to the world already and we would be in heaven already. And we are still here because we're so caught up in ourselves and we only care about what's going on in our lives and our prayers are selfish and our actions are selfish and how we use the funds that God has placed in our, in our hands, we use it selfishly. And we're not helping those in the world. We're not taking the gospel to the world. We're not even taking the gospel to our neighbors. We don't even know their names often. And we're not sharing God's love with them. And we are responsible for the sins that are taking place. We are responsible for what is going on in, in governments and here and in, around the world. We are responsible because we don't pray enough, because we don't act enough, because we're not following the word of God enough, because we're allowing so-called religious people to interpret the Bible in such crazy ways that nullifies the whole power of the Bible. We don't call them out. And we're not in prayer and we're not in this type of prayer, praying for others and corporately repenting for sins. So corporate repentance, which again is not the corporation repenting. Don't wait for the whole world to repent. Not going to happen. But one individual, Nehemiah, praying for the corporation. Ezra, praying for the corporation. Moses on the mountain, praying for the corporation. Yeshua dying for the sins of the world. Corporate repentance. Taking the world into our hearts and minds and praying for them as if we are the chief of sinners because we are. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So now he's mentioning specific prayer, specific sins. Still a little bit general, your commandments, but I would imagine in four months he got more specific. We're talking just a few verses here of reading his prayer, where he prayed morning, day and night for, for several months. So I'd imagine he got very specific in the sins that he was confessing. And that is an important part of prayer. Confessing our sins and the sins of others corporately and specifically our sins. Allowing God to convict us of where we fall short. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And if we're receiving the Holy Spirit, we will feel the conviction of God upon us and we will see God as he is, which will cause us to see ourselves in relation to him and we will see how how far fallen we are from his glory and what sins need to be confessed. And there'll always be something next to confess. Holy Spirit is very willing to show us the next thing that we can grow, the next thing that can be removed out of our hearts and minds. 
Thankfully, he's loving enough not to show us all at one time. It would overwhelm us if we knew how corrupt and how dark we are. But he takes us step by step, shows us, convicts us, leads us to the Messiah. We confess it. He forgives us. He cleanses us. And then redeems us, transforms us, changes us, gives us power and victory over that temptation and that sin. And then he's able to show us the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And it's a growing process. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And there'll always be more room to grow. So we shouldn't stagnate. Confession of sins is an important part of powerful prayers. And we see he hasn't even gotten to, and the city is broken down, <laughs> and the gates are broken down. He has started, he's exalted God, he's called upon God, he's exalted God, he's been persistent in prayer day and night, he's confessing the sins of the people, he's confessing the sins of himself. Specific confession. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful and scattered, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and keep my covenant and do them, though some of you were cast out of the furthest parts of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And so he's quoting the word of God. He's reminding the Lord God, remember, remember what you wrote? Remember what you told Moses? Remember what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy? He's calling out, he's pulling out the warranty, right? And that's a good thing, right? You know, if you're having a problem, you bought something and, and it's not working according to the specifications, you, you call in customer support, you pull out the warranty. I bought it on this date, I got 90 days, or I got three years, I'm within that time frame, and it's not doing what you said, and so I want my refund, or I want it fixed, or I want whatever the warranty says, right? That's what, he's pulling out the word of God. God, you promised, and you've been faithful, you said if we were unfaithful, you'd scatter us. And you did. <laughs> so since you did that, and we know you're here, we know you do, do what you say you're going to do, you also got to do the other part. We have returned, and we are turning to you, and we are coming to you, and you promised to gather us, and you've been gathering us. So now continue in your faithfulness, in your word. Fulfill your word. So it's very powerful in prayer to have the word of God open to be praying the word of God, to be quoting the word of God, to be quoting the promises of God, and again, specifically for the need that you have. Lord, you promise that you desire that I be in health and that my soul prospers. If you're needing health, right? You are the great physician. You healed so and so. You don't claim God's power and his promises. You promise to meet all my needs according to your riches and glory. You promise that if I return to you faithful tithe and offering, you give back to me, pressed down and pouring over and the windows of heaven would be opened up more so than I could receive. I fulfill your promise. Quoting the word of God. Calling out in the word of God. You promised me that I would not have to break your Sabbath. You promised me that I would not hate. You promised me that I would not have to steal. You promised whatever. Quote his word back to him. Very powerful to do that. And again, it's powerful for us. To remember and claim his promises gives us a sure foundation to faith to build upon. We have his word at our disposal, his promises, his powerful, powerful promises, thousands of them in the Bible. And it's good when reading the Bible to be praying through reading the Bible. Right? So if you're reading the Bible, you're reading Nehemiah chapter 1, God, make me like that. God, give me a heart like Nehemiah. Take out my selfishness that my prayers are only about me and give me a heart that's concerned and praying for other people and mourns for other people, that mourns for Jerusalem, that mourns for people in Africa and North Korea and Russia and, and China and North Dakota and wherever. Give me a heart that prays and is concerned for you and for people. Interceding for them, right? So pray as you're reading the word of God. Read, God did this for so-and-so, God did this, he healed someone, you know, do that for me. Claim his word while you read through it. So quote the Bible in prayer. 
Verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. So now not he's only talking about God's attributes like he did earlier, but more so now he's talking about what God has done. Right, so one is his character, you're great and you're awesome, you're the Lord God of heaven. You have done, you who are, you who have made covenants, but now this is what you have done. You created the earth, you said, and it was. You put fingers on lepers, you put hands on lepers, nothing is impossible for you. You brought forth the dead, nothing is impossible for you. For you. Claiming what God has done. You are the redeemer. You redeemed by your great power. By your strong hand. You brought us out of the land of Egypt. You brought down horrible rulers in the past. Nothing is impossible for you. Right? So claiming his reputation. Quoting back his reputation. And again, it builds our faith that he's able to meet our need, whatever your need is. You took a city that was just rubble and you built it back up. So certainly you can fix my, help me fix my plumbing. <laughs> it was waste for 70 years, right? And it, so there's no doubt you can guide me to a good plumber or something. So quote God back on what he has done, what he is able to do, what he has done in the past. And that builds faith. Builds faith in the praying person. Right? Just like if you went to someone for help, they're saying, oh, I don't know if I can do it. But you did this in the past, and you helped that, you did that. Remember that time you did that? And you remind them, like, oh yeah, maybe I guess I can. Not that God needs that, but again, it's for us. Builds our faith in what God can do. And you look at the attitude he's coming with. He hasn't even mentioned again, cities and walls are broken down. <laughs> the people are in distress. And great reproach, or great distress and reproach. All of this is exalting God. Calling upon his name, his attributes, he's persistent in prayer. He's confessing, incorporately confessing, quoting God's word, quoting God's promises, quoting God's power, quoting God's ability from the past. And that he did in the past, he'll do it now in the present and in the future as well. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire, who desire to fear your name. Now he's used this word servant already, and we'll see it some more. But we see here this servant attitude throughout this prayer. And we need to have a servant attitude, even as we're claiming God's promises and bringing his promises back to him and quoting his warranty to him and claiming his ability to do things in the past, but we still need to be submissive. Your will be done. If it's according to your will. Yes, you healed so-and-so. Yes, you did this. Yes, you provided here. Yes. And if it's according to your will, I'm your servant. You're the Lord. You know what's best. If this would be best for me right now, then meet this need. You see more than I do. You're in a position that know more than I do. I'm just a servant. I'm just bringing the wine, whatever. You know all the various factors. You know if I got that thing or that happened or that happened for that person or whatever, what would be the long-term effects upon them or upon me as far as salvation, as far as what is really good, as far as what I would really desire in seeing things from your perspective? A servant attitude. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, your will be done. If I perish, I perish. Surrendered to the Lord. Just your servant. Please hear, according to your will, may it be done. So we need to have a servant attitude in our prayers before the Lord. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's this man? Not himself. No. Nope. Let your servant, that's him, 
prosper this day, I pray, and grant him, referring to himself, mercy in the sight of this man. Who's the man? Not only Nehemiah, the king. Because he's got a plan. We'll know that when we read chapter 2, right? He's got a plan. He's going to bring this to the man. The man who can, earthly man who can do something about the situation. And he's praying that God would go before him. So now he's actually gotten to the request. The request is, Lord, impress the heart of Artaxerxes because I plan on going to him. So prepare my heart, prepare his heart. Help me to find mercy in his sight and prosper in his sight when I go and present this request to him. And so he does eventually get to the actual request that he has. And we do need to present our request eventually in the prayer, but so much different than our prayers, so typically. We just jump right in. God fixed my car, you know. <laughs> Why is it not working again? You know, so we jump in with just the request and not set the stage for the answering and preparing our hearts for why God really has allowed it to break down again. But he does eventually get to it, and he's praying with a plan in place. Right? So we should have a plan in place, a plan of action, not on our own plan. It needs to be God's led plan. It needs to be one that comes from the Holy Spirit impressing us. But we shouldn't just be laying there just waiting, you know, laying in bed. God, give me a job. Why don't I have a job? God, give me a job, right? You know, I tell you to go and apply for a job, right? You know, go and knock on some doors. Go fill out some applications. Right? He doesn't necessarily bring it into your bedroom for you. Right? So he has a plan of action, but he's wanting God to prosper him and bless him in that. And again, all these other verses, in prepare my heart as I go to prepare to apply for that job. As I go to ask for that date, as I go to try and fix the light bulb, as I go and try and change the tire or change the oil or fix the plumbing or call upon a plumber, as I go through the list of plumbers, how do I know which one? Guide and direct me. Give me for not taking better care of it, whatever, confessing the sins, going through the prayer, the principles of the prayer as he has done. And so we should have a plan in place to bring about the fulfillment of it, and he does. He's thinking. He's not only praying for people way over in another city, he wants to help. And so we should be praying for others, but we should also be praying in a way and seeking what can we do to help. And maybe it's just more prayer. Maybe it's telling other people so other people can be praying too. Maybe it's sending donations. Maybe it's just telling other people so that they can donate. Maybe it's going and helping. But have some thoughts on what's going to be, what God's going to call you to do in answering this prayer. It's still God who does it. It's God who answers. But he wants to use us in this world. He could have taken the gospel to the world without us a long time ago. Lord, don't only just pray for your neighbor for their salvation, but Lord, how do you want me to witness to them? What do you want me to share with them? What do you want me to give them? Is there something I can do? Is there a present? I know their birthday, or I know this holiday that they, is important to them that's coming up, and I can give them a gift. Which gift? You know, what type of, what to say, and when's the right time? Be in tune with the Holy Spirit, but have a plan in mind that you're willing to act, that you're willing to do as Esther. Planning to go before the king, but fasting and praying three days first. And then I will go. God's calling us to go. God's calling us to action. God doesn't want just prayer. He wants prayers that act. By God's power, not our own power, not our own strength. But prayers that bring a forth action on the part of his people. And Nehemiah is willing to do that. He's willing to pray and to go before. And so here's our list from Nehemiah's prayers. Prayer, very short prayer that he continued. Again, I'm sure it wasn't the same words for four months. But the principles are there throughout. And again, we see these principles in lots of prayers through the Bible. So in our prayers, learning how to pray or becoming better prayer, 
warriors, putting on the armor of God. One of them is all prayer, having all prayer. It's a very powerful part of the armor of God. In some ways, maybe the most important part. Because we're going to pray everywhere and anywhere. If we store up the word of God in our mind, we'll be able to quote it even if we don't physically have it anymore available to us. To be in prayer. To call upon God specifically. And if you've been praying and missing any of these things, call upon him specifically, whatever title fits the need and identifies him as the Lord God that you're in need of. Call upon God and his attributes. What he's able to do, he's glorious, he's almighty, he's merciful, he's forgiving. Persistent in prayer. If you've given up in prayer, don't give up. Never give up. Corporate repentance. Not a, I'm so thankful I'm not like them. I won't get us anywhere. But identifying with the person even our enemies, pray for our enemies, love those who despitefully use us. Corporate prayers, as if we're them, specifically confessing our sin, our part of failure, where we have fallen short, quoting the word of God, be familiar with the word of God, have the word of God open, be reading the word of God daily, Knowing the word of God, it's a very powerful part of the armor of God. Very powerful tool, tool in prayer and usefulness. In defeating Satan, defeating the enemy, overcoming sin and temptation. And exalting the power of God in prayer. Whatever specific things he's done in the past, remind yourself of what he's done in the past. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. History will repeat itself. He will come through again. That's why we have the word of God to remember, remind us and let us know what God is able to do. And nothing is impossible for him. And it puts our whole problem in perspective. When we see him as the God of heaven, so we see him as the God of the universe. It puts everything in perspective. We're just this little speck of a planet. And just a little speck of a town, a little speck of a country, in God's great universe. And he's done this, he's done that. Nothing is impossible for him. He shut the lion's mouths, nothing is impossible for him. Puts everything in perspective as we bring it to him and come with him with a servant attitude. If he answers the prayer the way you want, praise the Lord. And if he doesn't, praise the Lord. He knows what's best. We present it asking for him and his great wisdom and knowledge and forethought and foreknowledge to do what is best for his kingdom's sake in the long run so there'll be more people in the kingdom of heaven as a result of the answer to that prayer. And then, Lord, what would you have me to do to help fulfill this prayer, to bring it to pass? What action on my part are you calling forth to do? And present the specific need at hand. And so, as we prepare to close in prayer, if you're not that concerned, you read the news and you don't care, poor guy, tough luck, just go on, maybe stop reading it because it's so disturbing. Don't tell me about the problems of the missionaries anymore. Don't tell me about the needs here. Don't tell me where places haven't heard the gospel. I don't want to hear it anymore. In a moment when we pray, you can confess that and give that over to the Lord. Or maybe you continue to listen and read with just a kind of a curiosity and it just more depresses you than inspires you. And ask God to give you his heart. That it would touch you. It would cause you to weep and mourn and pray. And pray a type of prayer that brings forth action. If as God is impressing you that your prayers have really been more about you, if you look at your prayer requests over the last week, over the last month, after the last year, 
And most of them have been about you and your needs and not God's kingdom and not the needs of others. Then repent of the selfishness and the immaturity and ask God to give you his mind, his thoughts, his heart to move from childhood to adulthood in a spiritual walk and to grow. If any of those parts that we just looked at, I'll put it back up there, are missing in, in your prayers, maybe you've just been praying and haven't been confessing and haven't been quoting the Bible and not familiar with the Word of God, any area that's missing in your life, in your prayers, the moment we pray, ask God to put it into your prayers, to put it into your heart. Because it doesn't have to be written down, it doesn't have to be wrote, not again following a list, not following a pattern, it's not a a mantra, it's, it's not a, a formula to get God to do. But these should be natural things. If you're a wise and intelligent person, this is what you would do when you were asking someone a favor. <laughs> Trying to get someone to help you out. You would come to them, by, call them by name, don't call them the wrong name. Right? It's not going to get you off on the right foot. You know, make sure that this is their specialty. And to... Uh, might have to ask more than once, especially nowadays. It seems that no one wants business. I don't know how many times I've had to call people more than once to ask them to do a job that I'm going to pay them for. But be persistent. All right, so we should be persistent, even with God. And if you've messed up, apologize. Ask forgiveness. If you go into someone you love, a spouse or parent, a child, and you messed up and now you're asking them to help you with something and you never apologized for messing up in the past. That's not going to get you very far. There's a lot of common sense things that we should bring before the Lord. And again, remind them you helped in the past. You could do this. Can you do me too? I heard you've done this. Can you help me? I saw you got five stars. Can you help me out? Exalt their power, but also with a humble attitude and be willing to pay, right? willing to act, willing to do. Again, all that's normal earthly stuff that we would bring into any table, any purchase, any hiring of anyone. How much more so in prayer? Same type of principles to apply. So it should come naturally when we're in tune with God and praying in His Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we praise your name, Lord, for teaching us how to pray. We thank you, Lord, for being a God who hears prayer. Thankful for that you are a God who changes hearts. Thank you for giving Nehemiah your heart. Give us that type of heart as well. Give us a burden, your burden, your love for others. Love others more than ourselves. Give us your eyes, give us your ears to be attentive. Give us your feet and your words and your hands to act. Make us prayer warriors. Use us in bringing down the strongholds of the devil, knocking down his gates, setting people free, unlocking the keys of heaven through prayer. You said we have not because we ask not. Give us a heart that prays, prays consistently and doesn't give up, instant in prayer, continually in prayer, an attitude of prayer, a life of prayer. May we move forward on our knees. Give us a prayer life. Give us a prayer walk. Give us repentance, give us humility. Give us the gift of confession. Convict us and show us where we have fallen short. Give us a heart that identifies with the rest of humanity. Remove our self-exalted and forgive our self-exalted attitude. Our better than others. Thank you, Yeshua, for your death. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for forgiving. Thank you for hearing our prayers and hearing our confessions and forgiving. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that has changed hearts, changed minds, changed nations, changed whole communities. Change us. 
work in us and through us and use us for your honor and glory as your servants here i am send me in yeshua's holy name amen